Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. I don't know what I did here, but uh, what am I doing wrong? How is that? All right. Well, you may be wondering why we put the offering box back there. It's just because we have more than half our people giving online now. And so when the offering plate goes by, it's discouraging to watch everyone pass it along and give the impression nobody gives at this church. A lot of people give at this church. It just, they do it with their little phones. And so we decided rather than having that discouraging practice every week, we'll have it in the back. If you still, if, if you're among the other half of the church that still gives by cash or check, we would invite you just to do that back there and understand that's the reason why we're doing it. We'd rather use the time instead of passing the plate to talk about what happens when we worship God through our giving here. And so please keep that in mind. There's a reason for the change that we've made. Uh, in case you're wondering, um, no, I'm not trying to start a new necktie movement. Uh, but if you're one of the leaders at our church, you've probably gotten used to seeing me carry around a bungee cord. I've been carrying this around in my bag now for about a year. And I've used it to teach something that has helped a number of people make some spiritual breakthroughs in their lives. And I had originally intended at our, our leaders meeting, our quarterly leaders meeting next month to teach this, and it's usually covered over six individual 90-minute sessions, and foolishly, I tried to condense it into a single seminar, and I was going to deliver that to our leaders. Well, I got a chance to test drive it on another church a couple weekends ago, and uh, I think the people were left a little overwhelmed by the sheer content and pace of the material. And so I realized rather than squeezing all of that into one thing, it would make more sense to distribute it over multiple weeks. And then I thought, why only limit that to our leaders? I, I, so I decided just to convert that into a sermon series and talk about what this is. And, you know, my son was supposed to help me out, but I realized he's run off to youth group. So I need another brave man who's got a belt on to help me out. Would someone with a belt on who has courage come up here? Thank you, Randy. That's right. <clears throat> All the younger men are scared, Randy. That's, that's the thing. So here's what I'm going to do, okay, Randy? I'm just going to hook this onto your belt. Wow, your, your belt is on really. There you go. There we go. Okay. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Randy, okay? I, I promise I won't let go and put a giant wound in your back, but I'm going to ask you to slowly start walking away from me. Keep going. Okay. All right. Can you keep going? You can't? That's as far as you can get? I'm going to let go now. I'm, I'm kidding. All right. Come on back. Come on back. All right. So, you can have a seat. Thank you. Let's give him a hand. Now, that was not the most impressive demonstration you'll ever see. It's not like I did some magic trick. But... As you watched Randy have that bungee cord clipped to his belt and start walking away, give a little thought as to what you saw and what he was experiencing as he did that. What are some of the observations you might make? And in a sermon setting, it, our church normally is not the kind of culture that you just shout stuff out. But if you want to, 
I want to, I'm going to give you a chance to be a little different. What did you notice? What, was, what were some observations you made about that experience? Okay. You guys are just in good listener mode. Let me make some observations on your behalf. At first, when he started out, it was easy to walk, right? But as he got further and further away from me, the tension increased. And the tension increased in such a way that there came a point where he couldn't walk any further. The tension became so great, there was a limit to his forward movement, and he stopped, and he had to stand still. It was not a function of his strength or lack of strength. You cannot go any further at some point. And then as he was at the very far end of that tension, what do you think he was feeling? Yeah, tension, right? Constant tension. You can never ignore that tension. Most guys I've done this with their greatest fear is that I, I being weak and old, I'm going to let go of that, and that cord is going to come snapping forward, and it's going to put a hole in their back. So that's a big worry. But regardless of what the worry is, when you feel that tension and you can't move any further, that tension is a constant companion. It never quite leaves you. You feel it all the time. And here's what is more. At the height of that tension, just staying where you are takes effort, doesn't it? Just standing still requires all of your will, and if you relax your effort even for a moment, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start getting pulled backward. So those are some little observations we can make from a very simple exercise, but the reason I do that exercise is because I think a lot of us go through seasons where we feel exactly that dynamic in our soul. You know, if you're fairly new to the faith and all of this is new to you and you're coming alive in Christ, we're so happy you're here because we need that infection to touch all of us. But if, like me, you've walked with Jesus for a very long time, you'll go through seasons where the novelty of it, the newness, can fade over time. It's, it's possible to walk in renewal on a regular basis, but from time to time what you're going to experience is you don't have an open hostility towards God. You, in fact, want to draw closer to him. You love him. You like him. You wish you could keep moving. But something inside of you, deep down in the inner being, feels stuck. It's like you're going through the motions. You're showing up at church. You're going to small group. And you're trying to walk forward. It's not like you're saying, forget it, God. You're going to have to come get me. We're trying, aren't we? And we want to move forward. But for some reason, something in us has bound us. It's anchored us in place. And now we can't seem to move any further forward. And the thing is, we remembered a time early on in our journey when it wasn't so hard. Yes, there was always a little resistance. But it felt like our lives were marked by forward movement spiritually. But we get to seasons where that forward movement starts to become harder and harder, and the tension pulling us back becomes stronger and stronger. And some of us have gotten to a point where we cannot move forward at all. We're simply stuck in place. And right now, if we're honest, just keeping the attitude we have, a sort of non-hostile, low-level smolder, I'm here, Lord, it's about all I can say, I'm here. That attitude though it falls far short of where we want to be, is taking all of our effort. And we know somewhere deep down that if I stop caring, if I stop trying even for a minute, I'm going to start falling right back. That I'm not going to be able to stand in place. It's going to pull me right back to where I started. 
Am I the only one who goes through this? You guys are staring at me like, what a bad Christian. Am, am I seriously the only? Yeah, I can't be the only one. Do you want me to start pointing out? <laughs> I mean, aren't, aren't we all familiar with that dynamic where some days you wake up, you're like, why do I feel so numb? It's like I know these things are true. I want to move forward. But whatever I do, it's like something is holding me in place, and I cannot seem to move ahead in my journey with Christ. Why is that happening? And some people, when they get to that, that place, that experience, are lost as to why it's happening. And rather than inquiring further, they just say, well, maybe this is it. Maybe that's just what happens at a certain point, And they give up the fight. And I don't want us to do that. So what I want to do through this exercise in this short sermon series is to help us discern some things in the spiritual realm that can create that dynamic in our lives. I call these spiritual bungee cords. That's, that's not a phrase unique to me, but some mentors of mine helped me discover some of these things. And I've been developing it now for a couple years. And I feel like this has helped me personally understand why even when I want to, even when I'm not hostile towards God, there are times in my life where I just cannot seem to keep going forward in my journey of faith. And if that describes you now or at any point in your life, if that describes someone you care about that's close to you right now, I hope this will help you discern how we can be set free and move forward. Are you with me? Are you interested? All right, good, good. Uh, If it doesn't relate to you at all, just think of it as helping me, a weak Christian, figure out how to keep going, all right? You know, we're fond of saying as evangelical Christians, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And many atheists around the world have ridiculed us for that phrase. And the truth is, I think it is overstating it a bit. It is a religion. Let's not kid ourselves. It is a religion by all the standard definitions of religion. But what we are really saying is it's unique because it's a religion that is absolutely rooted in a relationship. In fact, Christianity cannot be made sense of. It's unintelligible apart from an actual personal relationship with God. If you attempt to practice or understand Christianity apart from the lens of a relationship, none of it will make sense. It will start to deaden your soul. It will frustrate you because to be a Christian without knowing God is like to have the worst version of human life. All the don'ts, none of the blessings. All the thou shalt nots and none of the why shouldn't dies, right? In other words, to, uh, to follow Christ as a religion is one of the most soul-deadening endeavors you can imagine. But to follow Christ as a relationship starts to stir up something. And it stirs up not just sentiment and posture and attitude, but it stirs up obedience. It stirs up submission. It stirs up worship that is sacrificial. All the things we want to do spiritually happen naturally out of a real relationship with a living God. You know, there's a time when Jesus was asked by a religious expert, hey, what do you think is the most important command of the heart of God? which is code for what do you think God wants from us? What, does, what is most important as a religious or spiritual being? This was a question Jewish religious leaders would debate in the temple courtyards for hours at a time, partly because they just loved a good debate, and partly because it's one of the most central questions of all faith. Have you ever shouted at the sky, God, what do you want from us? 
Seriously, what do you want from me? It's not a rhetorical question. In fact, many thoughtful people have asked that question over many thousands of years. And there was a time when someone asked that of Jesus, and he answered the question very simply. He didn't even skip a beat. He said, that's easy. The greatest command is framed entirely in the language of relationship. He said, love your God with everything you've got. And the second is just like it. It's just as important. Love other people the way you already know to love yourself. In other words, the greatest thing on the heart of God for us is not that we would march to some moral code or adopt certain lifestyles and ethics. The greatest thing on the heart of God is that we would know him in a loving relationship, that we would enter into a love relationship with him, and out of that, all the rest of it would flow. And then because we have that relationship with him, we would begin to treat and interact with people around us very differently. We would, in fact, even interact with ourselves very differently. See, I believe that if we are truly in Christ set free, even the self-loathing, the depression, the, and I don't mean clinical, I just mean like look at yourself and go, I just don't like what I see. I don't find worth in myself. I think those voices are silenced in the presence of Christ. Because what we, what we find in a relationship with God is he even changes the way we love ourselves and are then able to love other people. All relationships are affected by this one single most important vertical relationship. Now, I know that sounds trite if you've been at this church for a while. You've heard that before, but it's remarkable to me how much we affirm that intellectually. And yet when things start to go wrong in our faith journey, we approach it very much like a religion and not a relationship. I see this all the time. People will ask me for advice. I'm feeling weird. What can I do? Is there a book I can read? Is there a conference? Should I do something? Should I join seeds? Should I go on a mission trip? Should I flog myself with a whip until I bleed? What do I need to do? And it's interesting that though we affirm Christianity is built firmly on a relationship, when we don't feel well within our souls, we start to address the problem as though we're machines who need to find a cause and effect law that will make things right. See, here's what I believe. I think this is true, that if Christianity is a religion rooted in a relationship, then every spiritual problem is ultimately a relationship problem. Every spiritual problem, even when I open the word of God and I find deadness in my heart, like, I'm not excited about the Bible today. I'll do it as a duty, but I feel nothing. I might try to pray, and all I'm doing is, please don't fall asleep, man. Just try to get through five minutes. What kind of Christian are you? And if that's the thought running through your mind, and there's no joy, there's no peace found in commuting with God through prayer, that's not a religious problem. Ultimately, that's a re- the relationship problem. What's gone wrong is not that you're doing it wrong. It's that you're, something in the relationship between you and God has been hampered. Something is broken there. And because it's a relational problem, the remedy must be relational first. We can't fix it through religious means. I can't fix it through a discipline, through some action that will make this heart come back to life. That's the mystery of it. You notice, for example, that when a couple is having trouble, you can't really fix it by going, you two now look at each other, hold hands, um, go on a date, okay? And if you do that, everything's going to be great. No, it won't. 
Date night doesn't fix everything magically because the first breakdown is not in the habits of the home. It's in the heart. I've just stopped caring about you. I've stopped being drawn to you. I'm no longer attracted to you. In fact, I don't even care about you enough to be mad anymore. That's where it first goes wrong. It's a relational problem that leads to a structural problem. And you cannot fix a relational problem religiously with God. You just can't do it. So when we're experiencing this bungee dynamic, we're like, God, what's wrong here? What's happening? I want to draw closer to you, but I can't seem to move closer, and something is stuck. What is that thing? The answer is often found in this. Something is happening underneath that has deeply affected your relationship with with God, but you might not recognize that's what's happening. So I'm going to give you the first one today, and it's actually fairly short, which is why I made this one first, because this whole series needed a little bit of setup. Okay, I won't go through this whole introduction each week. That would be exhausting for both of us. The real question to ask when something seems wrong in my spirit is what's the relational dynamic happening here? What's going on between me and God? It's not what am I not doing, what am I doing wrong. It's what happened somewhere along the way to hinder the relationship I meant to have with God. Um, whoops, I don't know what I just did there. There we go. So you see, this is, it. This is the place where... Um, the, the religious expert asked Jesus a question, and when he answered the question, he said, love God with everything and love others as you love yourself. And look at what he says in verse 40 there. That's a summary of the whole thing. Everything written in the holy writings from God's heart to people is summarized in just that. There is no other motive that ranks higher than this. Many people live as if what God wants most from us is clean hands. He wants us to make a difference with our lives, to leave the world a better place than we found it. Those are not wrong motivations. That should be a big part of why we follow Jesus. But do you understand that none of those things matters more to God than that we enter into a real relationship with him, that we know him the way we know anybody that we love? And if you go, and I I believe religious leaders all over the world have demonstrated this, it's possible to do tons of good work in the name of God. It's possible to make a huge difference in the world and have zero relationship with God in your heart. And what God would say about that is none of the work pleases me. I'm glad some people were positively touched, but when it comes to your standing with me, none of that good work is a surrogate for the fact that I never really knew you and you never really knew me. So when something goes wrong in our hearts, the greatest lament is not that I feel bad, it's that somewhere along the way, the relationship that gives me life has been damaged and I need to understand what went wrong there so I can return to a better relationship with the God who loves me. Now, I believe most people, especially in this room, are good at letting most things go. In fact, in such a broken, messed up, nasty world, we couldn't stay sane if we didn't know at a basic human level how to let little things slide. Yes, we're annoyed. We might even lose our temper for a moment. But most of us can cope emotionally and psychologically and say, boy, I really didn't appreciate the way you 
just cut me off there or the way you told lies about me and all that. It's, I didn't appreciate it. I'm kind of mad, but by tomorrow, I'll be over it and I'll move on. In fact, even secular research proves there is a very tight correlation between forgiveness and emotional and psychological well-being. It's not just a religious observation, but even secular researchers who have no regard for spiritual things will clearly establish if you don't learn how to let things go, you will become a basket case. You will suffer from a horrible level of disruption in your emotions and in your psychology. So most of us are functioning and are sitting in this room and not a prison cell because we know how to let most things go. But can we also be honest? There are some things that have happened to some of us, not all. I'm going to admit to you, I'm one of those really weird people who has never had that kind of suffering or offense so grave I cannot conceptualize forgiving and moving on. I've had this charmed life where most things have gone well for me. So I feel horrible that I'm preaching to people who often bear so much pain because though I can intellectually understand it, I cannot experientially fully be there with you. And it might be why God has allowed me to to preach here is because I still retain some level of optimism. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why God gave me that experience. But I can tell you this. I've been able to let most things go, but I know for a fact as I share your life journey with you, that some of you have had things done against you that are so horrible, so damaging, so pain-inducing, that when I hear your story and I join you, I can't really think, if I were in your place, how do you move on from that? As a human being, how do you keep going when that kind of thing is done to you? I understand, at least intellectually, Why it's so hard to think about just forgiving and forgetting and moving on. Despite how many times you've heard it preached, how many times you've read it, you know what is right, but to do it is a whole other challenge, isn't it? Because the thing that was done is not a small thing. It's a life-shaping, life-defining thing. In some cases, what was done to you was so bad that the rest of the days afterwards till the present have been defined by that traumatic event. Even when the person who's done it has moved on and forgotten you, you've remained in that place of damage and pain. And so it's hard to think about just saying, you know, God wants me to let go. I'm just going to let this go. There's a, a threshold under which I can let it go, but this is too much. I can't bear it. It's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said very clearly, there is a direct relationship between our forgiveness of other people and the relationship we have with God. I wish that weren't true. It's one of those, as Al Gore would say, it's an inconvenient truth. There are times when I wish stuff like this wasn't in the Bible. It would make life a lot simpler, wouldn't it? Like, there's a limit. Even God goes, yeah, you can't let that go. I totally get you. Just kill him and move on. I wish that was, in, you know, because there are times when it's like, it's horrible. How can you just ask a person? And I'm often in that position of asking them, please let it go. And even as I say the words, I'm embarrassed. Like, I don't know if I could hear that. I would punch me in the face if someone said that. And yet Jesus, without 
any hesitation says, here's how it works. To the extent to which you forgive others, you will experience and enjoy the freedom and forgiveness of God. In other words, the refusal or inability to forgive another human being will raise a relational barrier between you and God. And the willingness or ability to forgive others will clear the path between you and God for you to be able to move forward. We'll unpack a little how that works, but what I want to share with you simply here is the relationship is very clearly established by Jesus. It works this way, that how we forgive others has a direct bearing and is a direct reflection of how we relate to God. And that's important to establish. I may not like it. I may even reject it at some level, but I cannot dispute that it's true. This is what Jesus Christ himself has laid out for us. See, here's the struggle I believe we have with that level of forgiveness for those unforgivable things. Is that the offense, the damage, the wound still remains with us. We're carrying it still. It's there in front of us all the time. And what's more, it's at a level that words of apology and remorse alone can't just erase. You know, many things, if you just wave a hand or you go, my bad. You know, I've hit people pretty hard on accident playing basketball. I'm a bit bit of a, what would you call it, guys, who play with me? I'm a little aggressive. And sometimes I foul someone, not meaning to hurt them, but I hit them pretty hard. And in basketball, the amazing thing is even if you elbow a guy in the face, you're like, dude, sorry. All you have to do is say, my bad. As long as you own it. I'm sorry I broke your nose. My bad. And the guy goes, it's all right, man. At least you said my bad. That's all it takes. There are some things, even if they're pretty bad, a word, just an action of acknowledgement is enough. I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. But there are some things that defy the power of words to fix. You do certain things to a person, you can't, even if you mean it with all your heart, just saying, my bad, I, you know what, I own that, I'm sorry. It begins a process, but it doesn't feel like enough, does it? I know that's the wrong answer to give from a pulpit, but I'm just trying to be honest and journey with us psychologically through this. So can we get real with each other? Words don't feel like they're enough to fix every offense. Even if they're delivered in the most heartfelt manner. And what's more, the greatest offense is not, it's this, it's that it happened at all. That I can't unhappen it. I can't turn back time and make this not true of my story. That what you did to me remains a permanent part of my reality. There's no control Z in the universe where we just forget. Unless you get bonked in the head and you forget everything. But you can't just forget that one thing. It still exists in the real world, in this dimension, forever. I think that's why there's so much literature in the fiction world coming out about the multiverse and why so many people are enthralled with the idea, what if there's another dimension, another universe in which that never happened? And I'm a totally different person. It's fun stuff to imagine, but I'm going to tell you right now, this side of heaven, we're not going to experience the multiverse. I might be proven wrong. Neil deGrasse Tyson might want to kick me in the butt right now, but... I just don't think, that's, that's fantasy. It's wishing there were a control Z for reality, but there just isn't. If you know nothing about computers, control Z is how you undo a thing. You just, oop, undo. 
It just can't be undone. Thank God for email and text messages. It's the one last reminder in the digital world that you can't unsend certain things. They're done. How many of you have ever sent an email or text you wish you could have recalled, right? Yeah. If you're not raising your hand, we got it. You should be regretful because you're a mess. I mean, that's just the way it is. You can't undo things. And so because we can erase, clear the air between us, but I can't go back and undo the thing, there it is forever. And so we're in this place where we can't just turn a blind eye, that yet we know what Jesus says is true. Where do we go with that? Basically, what I think we're trying to say is, this is too much. I need a place to put this. Something has to be done to make this right. I can't just overlook it. I can't just cover over it. Something substantial has to be done to make this right. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's like mold damage in your house. You can't just paint over it and go, oh, good, it's taken care of. It requires something serious to be done. You're not going to get past mold damage with just a coat of paint. And we know this. And we despair when we can't forgive. It's because we're despairing. There is no place to put this. I'm reminded of a time when I went to a cocktail party at someone's house, and I put something in my mouth, and I knew right away that's not going to go. It's no. Do you ever have that experience? You just put, mm. But it's really inappropriate, and because it's a person's house, it's not like there's just public garbage cans laying around everywhere. So you're in this place where you're holding something foul in your mouth. You don't want it to enter you, and you're looking around. Going, mm-hmm. and you're looking for a place to spit it, and there's no place to spit it. And if you're a proper person, eventually, when you have no place to put it, what will you do? It's gross. It's forever going to be part of you. But what are you going to do when you have no place to put it? You've got to swallow it. And that's why people get stuck in unforgiveness, is because they truly believe in that moment of despair. What can you do? Can you travel back in time? Can you unring that bell, unsay those words, undo that deed? It's impossible. This is just real. It is what it is. There's no place to put this. The good news of the gospel is there absolutely is a place to put it. Something has been done to make it right, but we have to accept that it's enough. We have to enter into the kind of relationship with God where that's more than rhetoric. It's not just words. We begin to understand something profound has been done. It's the way, if 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 that happens to you as a little kid, what do you do? If you put something in your mouth that, no, no, it's not going to stay there, where where do you go first? Mom or dad? And what does mom or dad do? Here, just, that's a good mom or dad. This is what every good mom or dad does. Here, just spit it in my hand. How gross is that? Moms and dads, have you ever had to do that? Catch something foul out of your kid's mouth or other parts of orifices, and you're like, oh, why am I doing this? This is disgusting. They're throwing up in my hand. That's a mom or dad. That's the father heart, isn't it? It's a mother heart too, but you see what I'm saying is that we're wondering what to do with this foulness, and we think the only option is to swallow it. And he holds out his hand and says, I've done something. You spit it out right now. I'll take it. And here's the thing. Paul reminded us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that when we come to Jesus, something profound happened. It's something we will unpack for the rest of our lives. But we have to accept that something really important happened when we came to Jesus. That something 
deep down, was made brand new. That's why we say it's born again. You're not just relearning. It's like you were born all over again from scratch, made new, an infant, starting over. And he says, you are a new creation, meaning I did not just cover the mold with paint. I built everything up again. I think that's why we love these makeover and renovation shows. We love watching old, decrepit things be torn down and remade. That's what we long for it to happen to our lives. And what the good news of the gospel is, is that when we came to Jesus, we were made completely new. We think that just means he scooped out all our bad habits, but we know that's not all of it. What he means is everything, not just the stuff you did, but even the stuff others did to you, all of that has a place to go now. He invites you to spit it out into his hand, to be rid of it, not to swallow it and hold it in, because all it will do is destroy you. So he invites you because he says that something amazing happened when you came to Jesus. I took everything. The old is gone. It's now in my hands. It's no longer stuck with you. And you are being made new. Something has been done to make it right. And here's the remarkable thing. He did not do it the way we might expect. He didn't give us amnesia. He didn't undo every consequence. Instead, what he did was he flooded our lives with such a level of love that is unconditional and mercy that is so generous that even if I cannot undo the thing done to me, something new has entered into me that allows me to bear the weight of it in a way I never could. I thought of how to make that clearer, and I couldn't think of a great example. I think the best I could come up with is this. Some of us... Our family of origin was a toxic place. The word family for many years was a very difficult word for some people. In fact, some people had such a difficult relationship with their mother or father that when they heard God as our heavenly father, they recoiled. I don't want that. I don't want God to be anything like father to me. Father is dangerous. Father is destructive. Father causes pain. So if you had an experience like that, where your family of origin did almost nothing but damage you, and then you found someone who walked with Jesus and who loved you from the depths of their heart, and through that second family, you got a new lease on life, a healing to the damage. That a love so unexpected and vast entered your story and so filled you that all the damage of that first family though it remains a part of your fixed story, is now sidelined because a new love has moved in that has strengthened your heart to bear the weight of it. It's as if the new love poured into your life has eclipsed the old pain you carried around alone for so long. And some people have experienced just such a dynamic in their second family. That though I was damaged by my first family, my second family brought healing. Not because they made all of the bad stuff go away, but because something wonderfully new entered the picture for me and had a profound effect on my ability to keep walking forward. See, when we're unwilling or unable to forgive, what we're really admitting is that I have all this damage and pain, all this shame and regret, and it's still in my mouth, and I still have no place to put it. 
Type A, self-reliant children, even when you hold out your hand to them, won't spit into your mouth. Mm-mm. It's not good enough. I can't. Bring me a garbage can. I can't spit in your hands. That's gross. What God invites us to do is to release it to him. And when we cannot forgive someone, what it signals is I'm still carrying it around because I have no place to put this. I'm terrified that if I just let it go, I will become unraveled because no one then loves me enough. If I acknowledge that this damage done to me is now forgiven, who will take care of me in that broken state? And what we need to hear this morning is the heart of God himself saying to you, I will. I will. That's my intent all along. I know you don't believe it, but try me. Let that go and trust me. Don't nurse your bitterness and grief and pain as though it brings any comfort. Let it go. Spit it out. Because when we cannot let it go, What we're saying is, yes, I've stood at the foot of the cross and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's still not enough. There is no place to put all this. Jesus invites you to drop it down right now. To say, yes, even that level of pain and damage, there's a place to bring it. And as we do that, something tremendous can now enter our lives and allow us to keep moving forward. If you remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, that direct relationship between our forgiveness of others and our relationship with God, here's a second thing to remember. What he's saying is not that he refuses to forgive you out of some petty, you know, no, if you're not going to forgive them, I'm not going to forgive you. It's not that petty and childish. What he's saying is, how can you genuinely ask me for forgiveness when you don't understand how forgiveness works? How can you really ask me for and receive forgiveness when in your inability to give it to others, you demonstrate, I don't know what forgiveness even means. Forgiveness is not a fine paid in full by the offender. Forgiveness is a powerful supernatural ability and decision to release the offender. And sometimes we forgive the person who hasn't even thought to apologize. I read that in someone's Facebook last couple weeks. That's power. It's to forgive someone who didn't even apologize. Where does power like that come from? What God is saying to us, what Jesus in those words is saying is, do you remember that the very foundation of our relationship, you with God, began with forgiveness? You could not stand before God and say a word to him before he first released and pardoned you. Yes, your things that you've done, your offenses may be less than the person who wounded you, but before a holy God, there isn't such a disparity, a difference between us. We began our journey with God through the forgiveness and mercy and release of Jesus Christ. And when we're unable to release another, It's pointing to the fact that we forgot how we started. Imagine this. And this is not hard to imagine in the days when you can murder a person on the internet without killing their body. It's happened all the time. One person makes one misguided 
foolish statement. Maybe they meant it for like a day. Maybe they actually reveal something about him. But we can destroy a life on Twitter. Literally overnight, a person can find themselves unemployed, cast out of society, no bridge to return back to the rest of us. I'm not defending their position. What I am saying is we live in a time when we can destroy each other with a few key clacks. You're done, man. Tomorrow you won't even have a job. I will scorch the earth with you. That's the world we live in. Now, I want you to imagine you were that idiot who said something stupid and everyone heard it and you did something heinous and it's universal. Everybody deplores what you did. And you're out there alone, friendless, despairing, destroyed, broken, full of regret, wishing you could take back that moment, hating what's happened to you. No one will touch you. You are a pariah. Imagine then, imagine that moment, a faithful friend who is a person of influence, a person of great power, finds you in that place and says, hey, come here. That was really stupid, man. You still believe what you said? Do you still want to be about what you did? No. No. But there's no way back. And what if this person of influence and power says to you, you come to me. I got a good reputation. I'm going to vouch for you. I'm going to put my reputation on the line for you. Just by associating with you, I'm taking a huge risk. But I'm going to do it because you need a friend. You got nowhere else to go. Now imagine that through this person's reaching out to you, your stock slowly rose, and little by little, you re-entered the world. People still remember what you did, but because of this person's association with you, they're willing to let you begin redefining yourself. Now imagine that this person who rescued you had another dear friend who had done something heinous and deplorable. They found themselves out in the wilderness the same as you. And you saw that person and said, that's messed up. How can anyone do that? Boo! And you flamed them online. You rejected them. How would that affect your relationship with your rescuer? How would that person feel watching you deny another person the same mercy you were shown when you had no hope? When you were out in the cold, friendless, alone, with no one to speak for you, and they spoke up for you. How would that affect your relationship with that person? And what if you went to the house and said, hey, I'm back. What do you want to watch tonight? And they said, you know what, I'm not really feeling it today. I'm going to ask you to leave. And you said, what's wrong? I didn't do anything to you. Yeah, I know you didn't do anything to me. But I think you've forgotten how we became friends. We didn't become friends because you were attractive. We became friends because you had no friends. And I came to you in the wilderness. I risked everything to be your friend. That's how we're friends. And I had this other person I love. And you shot him out. Makes me wonder what you think we are. How you think we became a thing. How do you come to my house See me as a friend and not remember how it all started. Are you with me? Do you follow? The reason our unforgiveness creates a barrier 
between us and God is for that same dynamic. Because it says we forgot somewhere along the way how we were able to stand in front of God and ask for a single thing. It's impossible for God not to take our unforgiveness personally. Because forgiveness is a deeply personal, intimate thing. And when he forgave you, it was a deeply personal choice he made. And his invitation to you, if you really understand what was done for you in that moment, is to say, Jesus, I have not forgotten how I became one of yours. And there's this person who is foul in my life, but they're foul because they were far from you. And I will not stand in the way of what you're trying to do in their life. I hate what they did to me. I can't just walk past it, but I'm going to give it to you. I can't bear the weight of this by myself. I've tried. And instead, I'm not just bearing the the weight of the hurt. I'm bearing the weight of my unforgiveness too. And I don't think I can make it. And as you surrender yourself to him and say, please take this from me. Remind me how we began. Give me the grace to release this other person in the same way. It will feel at some point as though a cord was cut. As Randy was pulling against that bungee cord, if I took a shear and cut it, what would happen to Randy? He would sprint forward. All that pent-up tension spent just standing still suddenly propels him forward. Now, this is not some magic trick. I'm not asking you to go home and say, okay, fine, I release you and just wait. It's a journey. This is a deeply spiritual, intimate process, and it's got to be honest and come from a place of recognition. But I'm simply defining for you what the issues are and how we begin the work. In the weeks ahead, you can hear a number of other things that form this dynamic of a cord holding us back. And this may not be your cord. If unforgiveness is not the issue in your life, move on and wait for the other ones. But if you're experiencing what I described in the beginning with that bungee cord, if that's what you're experiencing now, I encourage you to listen to these sermons with an open and humble heart. Don't be too quick to presume what is happening for you. Listen to each one with an openness and say, God, is this me? Is the reason I can't move forward with you because I still hold someone prisoner for the wrong they did to me? And I just don't have it in me to release them. Can you do it for me? Move into my life. Help me. I've got to let this go. It's holding me back even from you. Can I encourage you to really begin that journey of cutting that cord of unforgiveness? In the weeks to come, there'll be other things. Some of them, I think, will surprise you. I know I was deeply surprised when some of these things were were shown to me when I began to sit before God. Powerful experiences of release. And I hope that for you. I've been praying for our church that that strain we feel, someone would cut it 
and it would be like we're springing forward for the first time in so long. Don't you want that? Don't you want to run and actually move somewhere? Wouldn't that feel great? And I want you to know you are part of a kingdom where such a freedom is possible. We are not people who trade only in words and ideas. There are realities being described here you can experience. That's the kingdom we are part of. And what sounds impossible now is possible in Christ. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as we wrap up our service this morning, I'm going to ask you just to bow your head with me for a moment. Do you know that the majority of the people who most damaged our lives don't live in that place anymore? The damage they cause to you is often a distant memory, a bad spell, a time in their life they regret. In order to cope, they've done their best, whether effectively or honestly or not, they've moved on. We are left still entombed in that place. The real freedom is possible, and it's not possible because the other person makes it right. They can't. The real freedom is possible because the living God has done something unimaginable, costly to make it right. Like a loving father, he sees this poison you're holding in, and he puts out his hand to you and said, you spit that out right now. You swallow it, it'll kill you. Don't hold it anymore. I'm holding out my hands to you. He says, spit it out. There's a place to put that. Spit it out. Give it to him. He will take care of you. He will make it right. I'm going to give you a moment of quiet to just sit before him. And we'll sing a song and we'll close our service together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.